Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. We march today for jobs and freedom, but we have nothing to be proud of. But hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here, for they're receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. As we approach the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, it seems obvious in hindsight that this demonstration would go down in history as a huge success. A sort of blueprint for peaceful protest. I think that one of the things is we try to look back on an event like this. You look back on the success, but you don't understand what a high-risk venture this was. Clarence Williams is a reporter here at The Post. He and our colleagues have been working on an oral history, talking to organizers and participants who were on the National Mall that day. A chief concern for organizers was trying to get people to and home from the march safely, without incident. There were violent confrontations across the nation as people stood up for their voting rights, for their civil rights. And this was a big concern. You had a large confluence of people traveling across the segregated South. And then there were the more mundane fears. Like, would anybody show up? I know I woke up early. And I went down to the mall with Byatt. Just hours before Martin Luther King Jr. gave that iconic speech to a sea of people... Activist Cortland Cox and organizer Bayard Rustin looked over the vast empty space before the Lincoln Memorial. And there was literally no one on the mall. And Bayard looked and he said, you know, is anybody coming to this thing? So um, uncertainty really ruled right up until the moment that people started marching, I think. D.C. Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton was another organizer of the march. And she was in New York that morning organizing all the final logistics, getting people around the country on trains and buses to head to D.C. Then she flew in herself, just in time. Because I was the last one in the New York office receiving phone calls, I got the ability that nobody else had to come by plane. Everybody else came by bus. And I could tell as I was on the plane and looked down that the march was going to be successful because the ground was covered with people already. In the end, more than a quarter of a million people showed up for a protest on August 28, 1963, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. You have this very kind of specific ask, this very specific thing that people want that's tangible, jobs. And then you have this other thing, freedom, which is utterly existential. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Michelle Borstein, your guest host. It's Friday, August 25th. Today, we go behind the scenes with the organizers of the March on Washington, and Clarence and I talk about the ongoing fight for civil rights. My colleagues and I had to kind of help track down people from around the country, really, and, and go to people's homes and interview them in person. And we had to sit down and talk to these people in Zoom meetings and get them on the phone and record audio. And we wanted this to be, we wanted to be true to an oral history here. We really needed to speak to these people. 
And so we sat down with him in as many different um, venues as we could to be able to to get the true essence of what their memories were. So, Clarence, let's back up for a minute and tell me a little bit about the context of what was going on with people who might have been coming to this march. You you talked a bit about just the violence and threats and intimidation that was going on. For some people, there was fear, and you talked about attacks on some of the travelers and worry about coming into segregated Washington. And so what did people tell you about sort of what was going on in their lives related to some of these issues? Like, what did, what did people tell you about what was motivating them to, to come? The movement isn't a monolith. So people had many different experiences coming in, but some of them had some very key commonalities. That year preceding the march was a particularly memorable one in the civil rights struggle. We had the Birmingham demonstrations where, you know, the images of police department dogs and fire department hoses being turned on young people who were, had been put there to demonstrate at the forefront of the movement. Arrests were made in mass lots, everyone charged with the same offense, parading without a permit. That year, you end up with Governor George Wallace in Alabama defying the federal government against the desegregation of the University of Alabama and declaring, you know, you know, backing up his claims of segregation now, segregation forever. I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. And lesser known, I think, out in our memories, there were riots in Cambridge, Maryland, of all places, where a gunfire had been exchanged between blacks and whites, and martial law had to be kind of basically put in, the National Guard had to be brought in. And so this is all days, weeks, and months of events happening preceding the march. That doesn't count, the obviously, the decades and the generations of dangerous, violent incidents that African-Americans faced throughout the country. You know, terror at night from the likes of the Ku Klux Klan and the indignities of Jim Crow, not to mention, you know, the whole business of chattel slavery. So all of the weight of that history was happening from generations before, but also immediately. We were just not even a decade from when Emmett Till was murdered. And it's hard, you know, I know it's hard 60 years later to talk about the the kind of fear. But I mean, you know, basically, most black people were in a war zone, you know, and, you know, for any reason, not only the police, but any vigilante could engage in violence against a black person. This was less than a generation than when baseball was desegregated and the military was desegregated less than 50 years from women having the right to vote by constitutional amendment. And then one of the other things you might think about is that, you know, television really wasn't that old. And people were freaking out about Elvis gyrating on camera and and the like. And so these things, all of this notion of having, you know, uh, more than 100,000 people come to Washington was coming at the heart of a society that was really unsure what to think of this. We spoke to dozens of March attendees, and one of the things we asked them was, what was it like to live in America at that time? And and Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton expressed to us what it was like to to grow up in segregated Washington. Yeah, I grew up in the nation's capital. 
third-generation Washingtonian. Of all places, the nation's capital was a segregated city. I went to segregated public schools. Uh, the public accommodations were segregated here, right in the capital of the United States. Growing up in segregated D.C. made me really want to be involved in the civil rights movement because I had experienced uh, discrimination from the time I was born here. America's an interesting place in that regard, right? We're a nation born of revolution, but particularly when it comes to matters of race, we've been an incremental society. We've been one that uh, gone kicking and screaming, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the country and that's the rub that organizers of the march and the attendees of the march, that's what they faced at that time. It was important to have that context there. And were they, what, what's the goal of the march? What's the focus of the march? And obviously people had different, different goals, competing goals sometimes, you know. Did people have like a sense of what achieving civil rights meant? Was it, were there some agreed upon goals? We spoke to a number of our subjects who told us about some of the march's more specific goals, in particular trying to get this notion of economics and freedom. Jobs because of serious unemployment that affected black people. Freedom to get the civil rights acts that we finally did get. It's economics and freedom. Those were the things that black people most needed. Yes, and I think that did galvanize people. I think that people were, were anxious to create more job opportunity for blacks throughout the country. I think it's something that organizers and activists are still talking about. I also think this is something that had long been a part of the struggle, going back to the days of Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, who were, you know, two of the legendary giant figures in black history who talked about these two different sides, what would help uh, African-Americans to better be able to uh, embrace the American dream, which direction would get them there? Would it be through economics or would it be through the ballot and through political action? and political access. That rub has been at the center. These folks, you know, a couple of generations on from Washington and Du Bois, were ready to ask for both, not either or. It was time to ask for both. These people arrived in Washington with demands. This wasn't like a, hey, please give us this. This was, we demand jobs. It wasn't just a a celebration. It was it was demands and a protest. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, part of what makes this relevant today is that what they did there, they succeeded in such a way that it set the standard for how people come to Washington and ask for demands, right? You come in mass. There were ensuing marches and demonstrations that have mirrored or tried to emulate the success that the March on Washington had from the Poor People's Campaign to the Million Man March to the Women's March and any number of things. And it's like, hey, how do you get attention? Bring 100,000 people more and force the nation to have to watch what you're doing. But you show up here not just with numbers. You show up with a list of asks, you know, or demands. Here are things, concrete things we'd like to have happen. So speaking of the day specifically, can you tell a little bit about August 28th, 1963, like what would people have seen? So part of the the lore, the legend of this is that everyone remembers that as this super hot day. And the weather was only 83 degrees, which is hardly like that steamy August day that we all hate here in Washington. And, you know, the speculation is is because of the mass of people around. We heard great anecdotes and stories about people who arrived in their Sunday best 
You know, they, they were these are a bunch of folks dressed for church. You know, and there's this push pull between is this radical or just you know, and many in the movement were pushing for the idea of of explaining to America that no, we are members of the respectable class, and so folks showed up in their Sunday best to show off like, hey, we're Americans too. And hey, we're gonna put our best foot forward and we're gonna we're gonna look our best. And the other part of it is, you know, they're showing up to something that they believe is gonna be historic. You know, I think as many of the folks that arrived there realized that this was their chance to touch history or be a part of history. You went from like zero to sixty in in a half an hour, right? So you went from zero persons to 60,000 persons in half hour, and then another half hour, you got to 150,000, you know. The crowd themselves was incredibly serious, but affable and happy. Everybody was well-dressed in their church finest, and they were singing, and... Man, it was powerful. It was really powerful. Everybody was up. And they were singing with us and everything. And, a lot of and then you, you say, wow, so many people want to help us get equality. So many people want this. It's just not Dr. King and a few black people. So many people want to help to see this happen. That was a, a wonderful, wonderful for me to see. Um, the crowd was very disciplined, but anxious to march. They grew restless. They wanted to start the march and finally did. Some folks had already heard the likes and been motivated by the likes of Dr. King on Rosa Parks. The activity of the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, uh, the death of Emmett Till had inspired a lot of people to be active and say, hey, we're going to go out and fight, you know, not just for civil rights, but fight for our lives. And so they knew, they had been inspired by some of these people and they were there to hear them. They were there to hear the likes of John Lewis, who was the, the, the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee at the time, SNCC. And of those folks who were in the crowd who were SNCC activists, they were looking to be led. They were looking to be inspired. Um, they wanted to hear their words, you know, and they wanted to say, hey, uh, we need better. Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. Clarence, one of the things that's striking looking back on that day is that there weren't any women speaking at the rally on the mall. What did organizers tell you about that? I think that was one of the things when we sat down to decide on who we were going to try to interview and why that that was just glaring. That was one of the great deficiencies of the march. And frankly, there was no reason. The sexism was so broad then. That's the only reason I can think of. You know, we're, we're, we're human, and there's human fallibility, and there's going to be mistakes in any event. There's no event that's going to be perfect, and this was a glaring one. The people that we'd interviewed had talked about the role, the very vital role 
that women had played throughout the movement and in the organization of this very event. We talked to Smithsonian curator uh, Aaron Bryan, who explained that, you know, the women had been at the forefront of knocking on doors and and, and building support for this and and organizing and, and putting together the, you know, the messages that were going to come together on the stage. And yet, nary a female voice was heard on the stage. Um, they weren't any of the keynote speakers. Um, in the March organizer's own literature, we found there was... 10 chairmen of different organizations who were sponsors of the march. They were all men. You did have women like Dorothy Height who were um, who had their own organizations and uh, in some of the, the history that I read, um, you know, they organized immediately right after the march to try to have some words about what they thought about this. But it's a glaring omission. It is a glaring omission that, you know, women were a big part of what was being done and yet they were shut out of the speaking roles. Were people surprised by the age diversity? It wasn't just all young people. It was a big mix. I think in general, when you look back on on the march, the confluence of so many different kinds of Americans is what surprised everyone, right? It wasn't just young black folks, or it wasn't just older black folks, and it wasn't just black folks, right? It wasn't just Baptists, you know, it was bringing Catholics and, and people from the Jewish faith and, you know, uh, bringing these people of different backgrounds together, labor organizations and the like, this real feat of, you know, of coalition building, right? And so that's one of the things that was uh, definitely on display here. After the break, we'll talk about the immediate outcomes of the March on Washington and its long-term legacy. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So, Clarence, we were talking about the intergenerational nature of this march, but it's not like there weren't disagreements among the different generations or priorities about what they should be fighting for and how. Can you talk about that? The march was a key pivotal moment. This was kind of the the connection point between the older generations of particular actresses, people like A. Philip Randolph, who had been you know organizing you know in in labor uh, on the labor side of it you know for decades, um, and you know even folks like Dr. King, who had been working through developing a nonviolent strategy you know across many years trying to bring about this change. Change wasn't happening fast enough for the younger generation. And this, the March on Washington becomes like this pivotal moment that brings everybody together, but it also becomes like this the last time big moment before there's this generational shift begins um, to where younger uh, voices that have more immediate demands, some of them who are willing to be militant, enter the stage of this conversation where it moves well beyond just the notion of civil rights 
or voting rights or even economic rights. This look, we want it all, and we want it now, and we're willing to fight for it. You know, Malcolm X, well known. You know, the kind of the dichotomy that history has set up between him and Dr. King, this notion of, you know, direct action or, you know, how do you define direct action? You know, Dr. King would argue that everything they did was confrontational. It just was nonviolent confrontation. Uh, Other folks were willing to, you know, at least in their public pronouncements, were willing to be more vocal about other means. And so the March on Washington helped that coalition to hold together, young and old. But maybe they were able to hold it together. It was a tenuous one, and it was one that wouldn't last for long. Right. Um, what was the response to the march nationally? That one's a more difficult one. In the immediate weeks, you end up with four little girls being bombed in a basement of a Birmingham church. It's hard to say that, you know, you any kind of widespread success when the response to something like the March on Washington is, we're going to blow up a church. You end up with radical elements there that are not going to abide by this kind of change. They're going to see this, you know, against the the order of things. By the end of the year, you end up with an assassinated president, you know. But the following two years, you end up with the Civil Rights Act in 64 and the Voting Rights Act in 65 that show that what happened in Washington in August of 1963 had an impact across the nation. Once Congress saw so many people from all over the country coming, that was a kind of call to action. There was support for moving the country ahead to open the doors of opportunity in a couple of realms to African Americans for the first time really in a century since the Emancipation Proclamation. So immediate successes, but always in fits and starts. How do people think about that, sort of the legacy of the march or whether things are, you know, still very unresolved? You end up with, you know, the people that we talked to, I said, we're talking about this generational thing. People who were alive and who had attended the march or who had organized, they grew up in an America that uh, they couldn't imagine a black person becoming a mayor of a city, much less the president of the United States. You know, we're talking about the notion of having black astronauts. And that was just something that was just simply unimaginable for the time that they grew up in. I heard stories about people saying that, you know, in those days, you know, uh, blacks couldn't vote in these small Mississippi counties and these places across the south, these rural areas across the south. And now when you go back there, you find that, that blacks hold mayorships and their sheriffs and the like. And so the political side of it has seen real advances, real change. The economics have lagged. You know, people that talked about the number of black folks who are in prison as an obvious, you know, not failure of the march, but failure of the country in terms of where we are. We're still dealing with, grappling with these same issues. Um, You're talking about, you know, at a time where the things that motivated many activists was the killing of Emmett Till. Uh, Activists point today to the likes of Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor or George Floyd are reasons that still bring people out into the streets and have to march, be that at the hands of police or folks that, you know, feel they can act on their own, you know, and and kind of stand your ground principles that we've seen in, in recent years. And so the more perfect union still isn't here. Many of the subjects who we interviewed expressed to us the work that was left to be done. Um, Amongst them was Martin Luther King Jr.'s son, who was five at the time of the march, you know, and talked about the 
listening to his dad's speech, which he, of course, has heard, you know, hundreds, probably thousands of times. But he spoke very eloquently about what he felt like was the work that remained from his father's speech and from the legacy of the march. Dad shared his vision for our nation and world where he talked about how freedom and justice and equality should become real for all humankind. And he specifically used an example, of course, of his four little children being living in a world where they would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I think uh, clearly while he was talking about us, he really was talking about the children uh, of everyone. It was not just specifically us, but the fact of the matter is we have to raise the question of has that come true? And, you know, I think that realistically, uh, no, we, we've not yet achieved that day. The fact of the matter is in our society, many are treated differently because of the color of your skin, and we're seeing a heightening of that kind of hostility. Many folks are willing still to be out and fight, but they hope that the next generation is going to be willing to take it on. You and I were involved in covering the Black Lives Matter protests. Do you see that as a continuation, or do you see parallels? I think, you know, you look back on this history and you see kind of the way people react, both those who come into the street or the incidents that kind of lead up to it. I see echoes. You know, I see very clear parallels of uh, many of the kinds of events that people in the kind of discussions that people are having in the 50s and 60s are, are having them now. You know, I'm an adjunct professor, and I, when I teach education, I talk to my students, I show them images from uh, the desegregation of schools in Little Rock. First of all, I believe that the control uh, of the school should be left up to the states. I don't believe that the federal government should have any control over our public state schools. The Smithsonian curator, Aaron Bryant, had brought this point of, like, the value of oral history, you know, and so one of the things here in this, in the context here, is that not only are we talking to March attendees who are alive, right, and who very clearly were influenced by the movement, but the other side gets a vote, too, and many of them are still with us, and people who believed in segregation have been voting for decades. They raised children and grandchildren, and uh, that kind of ideology isn't gone. It's not in the memory of the, like, the black and white images that we see. Uh, we think it's in this distant past, but those folks are around, too. And so to be able to talk about this history, I think, is one of the things that the subject that we interviewed made, made real to us, that this is something that is still very much alive and why this march matters. There's been this dynamic, I feel like, when you talk about this period of the civil rights movement, radical, not radical. Malcolm X called it a farce on Washington. But then— there's been this new reporting about what Martin Luther King said about Malcolm X. Do you think it's been simplified too much and that that, that's a, that lingers in some way, this kind of aggressive versus peaceful or like that, that our narrative of all this is not is too simplified? Uh, all of this is really tough because it all does get boiled down too much. We're looking for, you know, sound bites. We're looking for it. Give me the bottom line here. You know, am I right or wrong? You know, black and white in terms of not, not race, but in terms of, you know, 
is there a great, you know, and there's just Who's tons a good of great. Guy. Yeah, good right. guy, bad guy. Um, and it's just, uh, there's just always nuance, particularly when you're looking at like this. People were motivated for a lot of reasons. We point to a, an account in our oral history about someone who comes across Malcolm X right after the march. And Malcolm saying that when we stop talking about this notion of between these two monuments at the feet of these two white men, between Washington and Lincoln, you know, stop leaving, being at the foot of them begging for rights as opposed to standing up and taking them. And I think that kind of duality was on display and has been on display throughout this whole entire experience for black folks, right? It's which way are we going to go? Which way gets us, you know, the, the goal is clear, right? Freedom, full access, right? Be treated, you know, as a full human, not be denied any any rights and just be treated like any other American. What's been difficult is, is how do you get there? You know, what's the pathway there and who do you follow? And as as we explore a history like this, that's always the challenge is to be able to try to introduce some of the nuance. And one of the goals of this was to be able to do so by using these people's voices, the people who were there, to be able to point that out to them, that this isn't just, hey, yeah, Dr. King, it wasn't as straight line as that, and it's never going to be. It's very difficult and uneven. I think that progress will be made. I think it is just much more difficult than certainly any of us imagined. Yeah, I mean, it's a moment in time of change that happened in America that, you know, we have to really realize that it's only a small part, but it, it, it's part of a river that was going along. So, But there's still more to do. There's always more to do. So there's another march planned for this year. Is that, how does that reflect the goals of the march 60 years ago? Again, I turn back to some of the reporting that we did in this, and, you know, historian Heron Bryant described this as like, you know, the March on Washington became a model for how people approach this. And it's unsurprising that 60 years on, people are still coming here. This has left down a marker for how it is that you achieve change in the society. Nothing that's violent, nothing that's going to turn a bunch of people off, but to be uh, at the center of showing moral force, you know, the notion of what can move a lot of people. And at the end of the day, I think our oral history, I hope, reflects the notion of individual changes within individuals, right? People being moved by different aspects of that day and their memory of that. It takes a collective of individuals changing their minds that helps to move America. And so it's unsurprising that we see like, as we've seen time and time again uh, across the decades where people have come to Washington to not just commemorate this, but to, to say, hey, we need to make some changes. We need to perfect this union, and this is how we do it. Let's talk about it in this space, in this national space on the National Mall. Clarence, thank you so much for coming and talking with us about this project. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you guys for having me. Clarence Williams is a reporter at The Post. To see more of The Washington Post coverage of the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, check out our show notes or go to WashingtonPost.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Emma Talkoff. It was edited by Maggie Penman. It was mixed by Sean Carter. Thank you to Ryan Basic, Ariel Plotnick, and Rena Flores. 
Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Elahe Azadi, Monica Campbell, Eliza Dennis, Ilana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernofsky, Savvy Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, Robin Amer, and Renita Jablonski. I'm Michelle Borstein. We'll be off next week, so if you're looking to get caught up on the news, check out our morning news briefing, The Seven. That podcast is hosted by my colleague, Jeff Pierre, and he brings you the seven stories you need to know about every weekday morning by 7 a.m. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back after Labor Day with more stories from The Washington Post. 